This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. Listen, here's what I want to do today. Recently, Don West and I had a conversation. Uh, We recorded a podcast, in fact, about it called Back to Basics. We were talking about what the core elements of a self-defense claim are in the context of all the cases that we've been exploring over these last several years. And here's what they are. Reasonable belief, imminence, severity. Those are the key elements that have to exist to justify the use of force in a self-defense situation. A defender has to have a reasonable belief that an attacker has an imminent ability and intention to cause harm that's severe enough to create great bodily injury or death. That's reasonable belief, imminence, and severity. We've also identified a handful of preamble conditions that uh, support a self-defense claim. These things aren't as critical as reasonable belief, imminence, and severity, but uh, they are considerations that investigators and prosecutors and jurors are allowed to make that contribute to how they view the reasonableness of a defender's actions. And the elements are location, does the defender have the right? Is he justified to be where he is? Lawfulness, the defender cannot be breaking any laws uh, when he defends himself with deadly force. The idea of a first aggressor, the defender cannot have been the one that started the violent interaction with the perceived uh, aggressor. And finally, duty to retreat, which is a legal standard in some states. Uh, but I'm going to argue over the course of these podcasts that it is whether or not the law requires it something that prosecutors may perhaps and certainly juries hold against defenders when they pass up obvious opportunities to de-escalate or retreat from a violent encounter before resorting to deadly force so again reasonable belief imminent severity are key pillars location lawfulness first aggressor and duty to retreat are our preambles. We are going to go back and explore uh, the dozen plus cases that are in our self-defense canon. Uh, If you've been with us for a long time, you may be familiar with these cases. And this time you're going to get the insight of our friend, Steve Moses. He's a experienced firearms instructor and a CCW safe contributor. And uh, for those who are new to listening to our podcast and reading the articles on ccwsafe.com, you'll get uh, a more firsthand uh, experience with the cases that are touchstones for us, cases that we reference frequently in our podcasts as we explore new cases as they hit the headlines. And, you know, I have re-examined again and again these cases and personally every time I take a second pass at them every time I have another conversation with Don West about these cases there are still things to learn so I think you'll get a lot 
out of uh, this series, Back to Basics, where we explore these cases from these seven uh, elements. Uh, here's my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses. We are going to re-explore the Michael Drake case. And a quick reminder that this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Instead, it is an exploration of the legal consequences associated with real-life self-defense scenarios. They're designed to make you a more knowledgeable, well-informed, concealed carrier. Here's my conversation. Steve, I, I want to start this conversation out, and we're going to talk about the Michael Drake case. And uh, that's one that you're pretty familiar with, right? You've seen the security video that that's happened correct. outside Actually, the convenience we did it store. Again this morning. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me, tell me what you see in that video. Michael Drake is a man. He's a concealed carrier. He lives in in Florida and in, in Pinellas County. Florida's a stand your ground state. And he has a particular pet peeve about people parking in handicapped spots. Uh, Brittany Jacobs comes with her kids and her partner, Marquise McLaughlin. She parks in a handicapped spot. Marquise McLaughlin goes in with his five-year-old. Michael Drake uh, gets into a verbal argument with her about it. And that's when we we pick up on the, the video camera. Tell us what we see there. Well, uh, what I see is uh, I see uh, Drake is having the, 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 the interaction. He's, he's, he's talking. He's arguing. Uh, he appears to be about four feet from the door of the, the car in which uh, uh, the young lady is seated. Uh, she opens the door and starts to step out just about the time that uh, Marquis comes out. And he walks over there, doesn't seem very hurried, walks over there, and then he shoves uh, pretty brutally, uh, he shoves Draca to the ground. Uh, Draca, you know, kind of rolls on his back, comes back up, and draws a gun. And then I actually see Marquis take three, possibly four steps back before Draca fires the shot, at which time... uh, the, the, the victim clutches his chest and runs back in into the uh, convenience store. And so the thing that I saw was I saw Draca, I felt like under the circumstances, uh, responded initially fairly well. Of course, he shouldn't have put himself into that position. I think we would all agree upon that. But once he had been shoved, he perceived himself to be, you know, perhaps uh, uh, in danger of uh, being, you know, injured seriously or killed. He drew his handgun, uh, he brought it out, but at that particular time, uh, Marquis took a step or two or three, it actually looked like four steps back, and was moving back before the shot was fired. So, in my opinion, uh, that shot was not warranted, and uh, a a lot of damage was done with that, Uh, not only to, you know, uh, the victim, the victim's family, but, you know, Drake, and actually Drake's family also. So... Just a just a real tragedy. Don, was there anything else about that video that stood out to you in your assessment of it? Well, I was trying to look at that video from a legal perspective because uh, Draca has been pretty universally condemned for initiating 
the contact with Brittany Jacobs, basically sticking his nose into stuff that he had been doing for a while, uh, complaining about people parking in a handicapped spot that didn't have the uh, handicap sticker. So they were there technically illegally, and he's taken it upon himself a couple of times, uh, and this time in particular to confront the person and remind them, I guess, or to give them a hard time that they were parking there illegally. He claimed, I guess, he has some personal stake in this because of a relative that's uh, disabled and such. But uh, I think that put him in a bad light right from the beginning, even though I don't see any part of that that's illegal per se. He wasn't breaking any law. You have a First Amendment right to complain about virtually anything to anybody at any time. You don't have the right to put your hands on somebody, and he didn't. He was just kind of running his mouth, and I noticed that Ms. Jacobs got out of the car to stand there face to face, so it would seem that she wasn't particularly afraid of him, didn't feel that he was going to physically assault or batter her in some way, but it became, it was escalating, it became more agitated, it was verbally uh, assaultive in that there, there was this sort of, this discussion that was escalating to the point that apparently somebody in the parking lot told Marquise McLaughlin, who was in the store, that something was happening. Of course, his reaction was illegal in my mind. Uh, he, he came down that sidewalk where, uh, Draca and Jacobs were face to face, and his initial reaction was physical. In my view, he was not defending her. He had no right to physically batter Draca in support of her position in this argument. So he committed a crime when he shoved Draca to the ground, and he did it forcefully, as Steve pointed out. Draca was knocked down on his back, on his butt, and was able to sit up by the time he drew and fired his gun, but he never did get up uh, off the ground. So, uh, I, in some ways, in my view, that Draco was the victim of the first crime that was committed, but by virtue of him inserting himself into that situation, he created a really bad context for his later uh, conduct to be evaluated, especially when there was that moment that Steve talked about when it looked like maybe he had an opportunity to draw the gun, but not to fire it. When you put the bigger picture together, I think Draco had a couple of strikes against him before this thing even started. Yeah, so, so that makes it a really interesting case to begin our conversation of these core elements and then these foundational preamble elements where I think there's a case to be made that there's some controversy and some, you know, close call here on these core elements, but Draca undermines the sympathy that he might get or the, the, the reasonable doubt that he might ask for because of his behavior with these preamble elements. So what I'd like to do in this structured analysis here is run through these core elements first, kind of get our bearings on that, and then go look and see how those were undermined by his actions leading up to it. And so for the first one, let's look at reasonable belief. And I'm going to put this in the context of, of Michael Drake has just been pushed to the ground 
pretty violent by a shove. He's prone. Uh, Marquise McLaughlin continues to... It takes a step towards him and kind of postures in a way that's aggressive. And this is when Draco decides that this guy can really hurt me. He's already indicated that he's willing to. Um, but uh, also not... He's, he's unarmed, as it turns out. Um, Steve, how do, you, how do you put me inside of Draco's head here, if you can? Or your impression of him... At this point, does he have a reasonable belief that... I believe so. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I believe so. Uh, he's been shoved to the ground. Uh, the man is physically larger than he is. The man is kind of he's extending his arms out, making himself big, you know, just kind of typical primate posture that we males do, you know. And he has, like you said, I think the term you used, maybe he was lording over him. And I definitely yeah. got that impression. Uh, if I were Draca... I would have indeed uh, been in, 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 in fear that, you know, I might get maimed, I might get killed here. This man, he's physically stronger than me. He's only a few feet with, uh, from me, and I'm in a very compromised position, and I'm not mobile at all. And so I sympathize with the fact that he felt like, okay, I'm in danger, and he drew his gun. Okay, so now we've got ability uh, we have opportunity at that point. I'm going to say retreat's not really an option for him because he's flat on the ground and this other person is mobile and standing over him. But this is where it breaks down because the intent, in my opinion, starts to melt because it was very conspicuous uh, or obvious to me that McLaughlin started backing off. And it wasn't just like a small, subtle step. It was actually three, maybe four steps. Matter of fact, it actually looked to me that he was starting to turn or blade his body so it was not square to Draca anymore when the shot was fired. And so, and so now, now opinion, you're speaking, Steve, to imminence, right? Like as soon as Draca pulled the gun out, McLaughlin responds to it and his posture changed and I think we can describe those steps backwards as a retreat, right? That's correct. That's correct. And so now all of a sudden the the imminence has vanished. And if hey, we're... I, I would hate to say that. No? Okay. I would say, uh, you know, the imminence has been diminished. I believe that uh, Draco made reference at some point to the Tuller drill and that a you know a, an average person can cover you know seven yards, twenty-one feet, one point five seconds, and so in terms of you know uh, I, I would say opportunity uh, or imminence, uh, that was still, in my opinion, that was still possible. He was still relatively close, and he could have moved very quickly in order to you know close on Draca and you know start you know landing blows on him but the intent in my opinion that's what was being um, you know diminished he's backing so the away. retreat telegraphed that he's no longer that's right pressing that's an right. attack you know I, all, to me all three elements have to be in place you know if i stand next to a, a police officer i mean really that person has the opportunity and they have the ability to of course you know do serious damage to me but they absolutely have zero intent so Without that third element, uh, I just think, you know, any claims he had to legitimate self-defense, I think they vanished. Yeah, Don, what's, what's your take on that 
yeah, that step mm-hmm. back and, uh, and how that plays into imminence and his reasonable belief. Well, let's let's go back to the basics as well, and that is it's a fundamental premise of self-defense that you can only use as much force to defend yourself as is being used in the attack. That's this notion of proportionality. So Draco was violently shoved to the ground, and at that point, he clearly had been attacked, and I think he had the reasonable, a reasonable belief at that point that the attack would continue. So I think he clearly had the, oppor- he had the right to, to use some force in anticipation of that attack continuing, because I think McLaughlin even took a step toward him at the very beginning. However, this thing turned on a dime, and that is because when Draco drew the gun and McLaughlin saw it, McLaughlin's response was to retreat. So at that point, I think that Draco had already used the force necessary to neutralize the threat. Uh, Interestingly, in Florida, drawing and even pointing a gun at someone in self-defense is considered non, the use of non-deadly force. So at that point, I think under those circumstances, Draco was legally entitled, especially being on the ground and being vulnerable, uh, knowing that an attack seemed to be imminent, a further attack seemed to be imminent at that point, to draw that gun. I think where it went sideways was McLaughlin reacted in the way most people would react, seeing a gun, stopping the attack and even beginning to retreat, at which point Draco did not have the right to use additional force, certainly not deadly force. But as we know from looking at the video, that whole thing happened in an instant. So we've talked before, and I I think maybe even now, part of Draco's thinking may have been clouded in that he believed and maybe planned on firing the gun before he actually pulled it and aimed it. So by the time he did all of those things, the circumstances had changed. And while he may have been justified in using deadly force, had McLaughlin continued to come toward him, to stomp him, to kick him in the head, to clearly use sufficient force to cause serious bodily harm or death, that had stopped at that point if you break it down into these sort of millisecond um, assessment. And I think when someone looks at it, you know, after the fact, that's where he, that's where Drake, I think, is considered to have made some lapses in judgment. And uh, Steve, maybe that's a, a tactical and a training issue as well, or maybe it's just one of those just horrible, horrible things that happens in the dynamics of a, an ongoing self-defense and attack scenario. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's a good point. It, it, it's hard to say. Uh, in many instances under stress, actually, uh, things seem to slow down. So there's, it, it's very possible also that he recognized it, he, that he had that opportunity, he made the decision to shoot, and he decided to just, you know, go ahead and shoot. There was just such a noticeable pause there that, that causes me some concern. Uh, by the same token, 
uh, if he believed uh, that the only reason to, you know, draw a gun is for the purpose of, of shooting another in self-defense. Well, that gun was drawn. Uh, that person is shoved into the ground. And so maybe, you know, indeed, he believed it was time to do it. I just couldn't say for sure, Don. Yeah, Steve, Don brought up the idea that there is some disproportionality of force here or that the proportionality of force is a important consideration in self-defense and you know, the term that we're using for that in our conversation is severity of the attack and you know as a uh, jujitsu student and instructor and a firearms instructor um talked about that for me just a little bit because uh, i think you can make a strong case that if you're prone on the ground and somebody means they're standing over you they've already shoved you and they can now kick you in the ribs or in the face or it, they may not be armed, but there's a case to be made that the bodily injury that you could sustain now is very severe enough uh, to justify. That is true. That's that's absolutely correct. And actually, I'm less uh, concerned myself about being, you know, really severely hurt by being kicked in the body. Uh, much more so that the other person just goes, you know, old first grade schoolyard bully, where they just mount on top of you. Uh, get above your hips, pin you to the ground, and then just, you know, beat you unconscious. The ground and, and pound. Yeah, the ground and pound, which is very common and very dangerous. Uh, the reason for that is that if you're standing and someone strikes you, unless they hit you just perfect, you've got a little bit of give, you can move. But once you are flat on the ground, there's no place for your head to go. The person is now striking downward and they're able to generate significantly more force. And it's very, very easy to sustain a, a, a concussion or worse uh, from a grounded pound. So to me, that's a very, very dangerous thing. He may have had some concerns about that. Uh, the, one of the issues, you know, Don had mentioned training, is that so many people's training is basically just self-training. That is, you know, maybe they took a class where they got uh, a carry permit and uh, they go to the range and uh, they, they, they practice, uh, they read material, they visualize what they should do, but they've never trained under a really qualified defensive firearms instructor whose goal is, is not to get you in a, make you survive a gunfight, is to get you in a position where you will not be in a gunfight and uh, you have options other than fighting with your gun and then if you do have to fight, do so in a lawful manner. And I suspect that in that regard, uh, his training was, was very lacking. Uh, I don't know what percentage of concealed carriers train overall or have ever even taken a really good defensive firearms class, but I think that number is you know well below 10%. So to wrap up this part of the conversation, let me just kind of like give an assessment here. Uh, based on what I've heard you guys say. When it comes to severity, the ability, the great bodily harm or, or death portion of this, we're giving Drake a pretty good marks here, considering McLaughlin wasn't armed, right? Considering the fact that Drake was, was on the ground prone uh, and this guy was so much bigger than him and in a, a better position, he, you know, that severity could have been high. He's, he's got, he's good on that element. And the reasonable belief that McLaughlin intended him harm is also on 
Drake aside here because he had been just violently pushed to the ground. So I, I think objectively he passes on this pillar as well. Where he gets into trouble listening to you guys talk is that, in fact, when he drew his gun and pointed it, McLaughlin broke off the attack by all signs, certainly based on the video that we saw. He steps, you, you counted Steve up the four steps backwards and had changed his posture to a less aggressive posture. That imminence factor, even though it happened quickly, disappeared. And this is the main element where he fails. Does that jive? I agree. I do. I do as well. It does. Doesn't it seem to you guys that McLaughlin's reaction when he took steps backward appears to have been upon seeing the gun? So it wasn't that he decided against attacking Draca as much as once Draca displayed the weapon, McLaughlin saw it and realized this thing has just changed dramatically. And then he broke it off. And as he was essentially uh, disengaging, Draca continued with the use of force under circumstances that when you look at that video, appears as though he had an opportunity not to shoot. And, and I think that was his undoing, that he had an opportunity not to shoot at the moment that McLaughlin was backing off but he didn't stop. He continued. Yeah. And to transition, I think, I think depending upon these preamble elements, right, a jury or a prosecutor could have gone either way with their assessment. Uh, Cause I think we've got such a slim amount of time where the circumstances change so quickly that, I think there's a certain amount of uh, sympathy we could have for a defender put in that position where they're, they seems like they are completely justified. And then all of a sudden inside of one second, the circumstance changes and all of a sudden they're not. And, and are we willing to give that defender the benefit of the doubt? And I think a lot of that depends upon was he justified in being where he was at the location were his acts lawful or, uh, if not lawful, not unlawful, then were they sort of socially acceptable actions? The first aggressor idea did, he didn't start the violence, but did he pick the fight that led to it and then any opportunity to retreat? So, so let's just look real quick here, Don. He's, he's certainly legally allowed to be in a parking lot. I, at this convenience store. I think it's interesting, even though he was upset about the woman, quote unquote, illegally parking in the disabled parking spot, he himself had in fact put his car in the parking lot, not in a parking spot. He was illegally parked. <laughs> and 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 by all accounts, uh, both um, both parties had equal justification to be at a convenience store. Was that fair? Yeah, I'd like to point this out. I don't know if anyone else has talked about it much, is that um, Brittany Jacobs was in a, a handicapped parking spot. I think there was another one there, 
but she stayed in the car. She was readily able to move the car if somebody else needed to use that spot. It, it wasn't as if she parked it there, got out of it, went away, and, and basically said, you know, you guys, for, you know, the hell with it. I, I'm just going to stay here being defiant. It got defiant because of he approached her and became confrontational, but in my view, even the violation itself, even if it was real, was pretty technical because she clearly wasn't stopping someone else who had a handicapped parking sticker from using that spot. There was no one there that wanted it. So that doesn't help Drake right. either when he picks the fight uh, in this context. And then you know, he was legally... Uh, he wasn't breaking any laws. I mean, uh, his parking violation, aside from from parking his car in a mm -hmm. non-designated spot in this parking lot, that doesn't that's not going to undermine significantly his self-defense claim. That that's true, uh, and, and so I'm I'm with you on all of that. Um, he hasn't broken any laws specifically, but he's done those sorts of things that that focus the jury's attention on him in evaluating whether he should be given the benefit of the doubt. And that extends beyond just his conduct there at the scene. Uh, I watched a lot of the trial and there was evidence introduced about a prior encounter with another person who'd parked in that spot that became agitated and yelling and even um, Draca threatened some violence at that point, and that evidence was offered to the jury. So they had not only his behavior at the moment involving Brittany Jacobs and Marquise McLaughlin, but they also had a prior incident. And we've talked about this on and on, and we should continue to talk about it because I believe that if someone who carries a gun demonstrates anything to a jury or ultimately, you know, frankly, a police officer or as a prosecutor is evaluating their behavior that suggests that they are the slightest bit irresponsible or a hothead of some sort, someone that might be looking for a confrontation, their chances of being successful in a self-defense claim uh, is damaged almost irreparably. And I think Drake had all of that going against him uh, at the beginning of this thing even though when you isolate the actual conduct, um, it's a pretty close call. But he just piled it on and piled it on with his uh, other, other behavior. And Steve, uh, I think it's a clear argument that physically, uh, Draco wasn't the first aggressor. It was Marquise McLaughlin that pushed him to the ground. But talk to me about the wisdom of a concealed carrier picking a verbal argument over, let's say, a minor, minor non-moving vehicle infraction? Well, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of just not picking an argument with, with anyone. Uh, you know, and one of the really bad things uh, that concealed carriers are prone to do is uh, once they feel that they now possess a concealed handgun, uh, that there's things now that they can do uh, more safely uh, than they could before when they were in, you know, unarmed. You know, I think there's an old saying is, you know, uh, never go someplace armed that you wouldn't go unarmed. 
And so uh, I, there's actually, I've, I've seen several, several instances where other concealed carriers actually put a gun on because they knew they needed to confront their uh, neighbor over something. They were concerned it was dangerous. So it was just absolutely, there's just no merit in doing that. And again, you have no control over what might happen even if you go up there unarmed in order to uh, have a disagreement with someone in which you don't really need to be involved. So again, you know, I'm just always a, a, an advocate of uh, discretion over, you know, confronting someone, especially over something just as minor as that. Sure. And Don, I think legally he's not the first aggressor here, but I don't think the jury ever forgives him for, for picking this argument. Do you agree with that? I do. I, I agree with it. And, and in watching the trial, the prosecutor took every opportunity they could to remind the jury who, in their view, started this thing. And, you know, for no good reason, I guess that becomes part of it, too. What is a good reason? Why would you initiate a confrontation? Well, he had the right to do it, as we've talked about. But carrying a gun, uh, putting himself in the situation that might very well escalate, not just with Ms. Jacobs, but, you know, with, with tragic consequences of Marquise McLaughlin, just put him, I think, in a negative light right from the beginning. And that was something that uh, the, the facts were not so clear that they uh, gave the jury a clear choice in his favor and uh, the rest of it was just pretty muddy and he was the guy that uh, was muddied up so here's a the final element here is duty to retreat and i don't think that plays really into this case but interesting because florida is very famously the first stand your ground state where the duty to retreat is specifically waived by the statute, anywhere you have a legal right to be and you're not breaking a law, uh, you can meet uh, force with force. And, you know, this is one of those quirks about the misunderstandings of stand your ground. Uh, I'm going to suggest, and you guys let me know if I'm wrong here, and Steve, I think you've actually even made a statement that leans this way, that once Drake is on the ground and prone and McLaughlin's right there above him, you, retreat's not really an option for Drake at that point. Do you no, agree with I, that, Steve? I, I don't believe so. And, and some people, you know, could argue that, okay, well, maybe he could have gone ahead and uh, gotten up and, you know, perhaps he would not have been attacked. But at that particular instance, having been shoved to the ground that violently and considering the youth and the size of that particular person, uh, I would have felt like I'm pretty much pinned here. So I really need to stand my ground because I must and, you know, not because I just, I can. And Don, from the legal perspective, no, no, even in a duty to retreat state, I think this doesn't become a real big issue in this legal defense, is it? No, agreed. Agreed. I think once Draco is on the ground, he has no place he can go. And the idea of a duty to retreat is built into that is that you can safely retreat, that you can get away without increasing the risk to yourself. So, no, I think uh, I think Draco reacted legally to the extent that he was legally allowed to react. 
<laughs> that right. sounds kind of uh, <laughs> a, a safe lawyer's answer there, right? <laughs> there, there you go. Well, it, it, there you go. And to wrap, so to wrap this all up, if we're looking at location, uh, I think we're neutral on this point, not really in Drake's favor or against him on this. Lawfulness, he's not breaking the law, but Don, you referenced he had some prior uh, bad acts. Some, you know, He had an uh, uh, interaction with somebody that almost turned violent over that same handicap spot in the past. He had had a couple of brandishing... Uh, incidents that were in his record at least whether the jury saw that or not uh that that leans he's not breaking the law so not technically violating here but it leans against him the idea of first aggressor not not legally the uh the first aggressor he didn't start the violence but still he instigated the confrontation uh and that's held against him uh in uh, we believe in the juror's assessment of the reasonableness of his actions and, and duty to retreat. Uh, didn't have that opportunity, so that that's on the side there. But if you take all of that and, and take it in the context of of his reasonable belief that McLaughlin meant him harm, his, the and the severity of the harm that McLaughlin could have done, our controversies here on the imminence, did Marquise McLaughlin break off did McLaughlin, did um, uh, Drake have enough time to respond to it? And if that's a toss-up, those preamble elements weigh things against him. Uh, and yeah, I think that's what made this case a close call. I think that's a terrific assessment of it. Uh, weaving the legal issues along with some of the subjective stuff, the stuff that can turn a jury one way or another, and of course the baggage that Draca brought into the case with him with the prior stuff that, that he had been involved in. Uh, there may not have been anything else he could have done because once he was on the ground and was pulling his gun because of his mindset and the decisions that had already been made, whether it was a result of training or that he had concluded at the point that he was going for his gun, perceiving McLaughlin coming toward him, that that was his only choice. And that would be a bit of a tragedy, wouldn't it? Because he missed the cues that McLaughlin clearly gave, when you look at the video, that he was backing off. And uh, there were enough cues there that the jury concluded that he didn't have to shoot him. And as a result, he got convicted of a very serious crime and is going to be spending a good bit, if not the rest of his, of his life in prison, all because, and I think, I think it's fair, although um, it's, it's harsh, he got the ball rolling. You know, he got the ball rolling. He started it, in a sense. And he injected himself in this situation uh, knowing that he was carrying a gun and uh, it just went so tragically wrong that he was the one, the guy that, uh, that wound up using the gun when, Steve, I suppose you would endorse the idea, knowing that he had a gun, knowing where these things could go, since you can't control the way the other person responds, even if you're doing something completely legal, um, that you have an obligation, you have an affirmative obligation not to get the ball rolling in situations Absolutely. like this. 
absolutely. I think I think actually it even raises the the bar a little bit higher for a person when you strap that gun on. Uh, I think you have to be more prudent and more diligent than ever in terms of avoiding a possible confrontation with others. All right, guys, that's the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Eminence. It can come and go in a second. Our new lesson from the Drake case. Until next time, everybody, be smart, stay safe, take care.